0: I'd love for you to take the word of God and turn to Revelation chapter number 2 this morning. I know that some of you are visiting with us this morning and some of you weren't here last week. Um, We're picking back up in a sermon, really, that we left off of last week. Taking it our task over the next couple of months just to give ourselves particularly to Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. There was somewhat of an introduction sermon a couple of weeks ago to introduce the seven churches and really the layout here. And then began the journey last week, speaking about the letter that's written to um, the church at Ephesus. I don't have time to go into all the details of the beginning portion of that. If you're interested, I encourage you just um, listen to the sermon from last week, and we're really going to pick up um, this week in with somewhat of a summary to bring you up to speed um, if you weren't here. But really focus in on the charge and. the command that's given to the church here at Ephesus. If you will and are able, we'll stand for reverence out of for the reverence of the reading of God's Word. And we'll pick up our reading, same portion that we did last week, uh, Revelation chapter number two and verse number one. You read these words To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things say, it says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's read. Let's pray. Father, we come to you once again just to thank you and praise you for the reality that we had before us, Father, that we could enter in boldly to the throne room of grace. Father, we wake up in this flesh and we seem so far away from you, yet at the same time we know the reality that if we're in Christ, we are so close to you that we could enter into your very presence and we could do it with a boldness, Father, with faith, pursuing the things that you have so promised us, Father, even in some sense holding you accountable for the promises that you made not in a not in a prideful way father but in a way to seek your glory that your that the kingdom of heaven would be made known on earth that our wills would be conformed to your wills and that you would accomplish the the, the continued establishment rule and reign of Jesus Christ in this world so father burden our hearts even now that Christ's will would be accomplished father and help us to boldly run to you I'm expecting with an expectant faith, Father, a great desire that you accomplish those things. And and may we do that even this morning, Father. No doubt it is your great delight and your ultimate desire that we would be conformed to your very image, that your word of God would go forth with, with faithfulness, Father, but also with power, that you would change our hearts, that you would continue to transform our minds, Father, and ultimately bring us into unity, making us much more like your son. So, Father, we pray that even now. We pray it, Father, trusting that you're able to accomplish it. And, Father, recognizing that if you don't, it won't be. May we not labor our own strength in the moment, Father. Uh, May you quiet our hearts, stay our minds, give us a few moments, Father, the next hour, uh, just simply put our thoughts upon you, and that you may accomplish a great and mighty work. Father, may may my voice not be heard this morning, but may the very voice of God, um, Christ's presence, the Spirit's power, be made known, Father, as your word is proclaimed. May it honor you this morning because we gathered. And may your presence be made known among us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. We come to the book of Revelation once again, as I'd already said. and Just as an introduction to bring us up to speed, these words were written um, in the latter decades of the first century. Jesus Christ is already gone. The church in large has been established throughout the world. The nations, in some sense, have heard the word of God, the gospel proclaimed. And the last apostle standing, it it might seem, um, the apostle John, um, writes these words according to the Spirit of God. These words are written by the apostle in the midst of possibly his greatest persecution as he was exiled to a little place, a rocky island referred to as the Isle of Patmos. And this is not about the apostle John, though. The purpose of this book, the purpose of the very scripture that we just read, um, was wholly to reveal the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to reveal Him. It is not to uh, veil the things within this book, as we might often read it as this uncrackable code, but it is a vision given to John to be given to the pastors of the churches, to be given to the churches that Jesus Christ might be clearly seen and His glory revealed. And in the initial portion of this, this wonderful book, Jesus Christ is seen in chapter 1 in all of His glory walking among the seven golden candlesticks or the lampstands, you may have it, which John tells us clearly. You wish John would just tell us this about everything in the book. He clearly tells us what those things are. And those are seven churches. John was commanded to write to these seven churches in Revelation 1 and 20 and even in a previous um, verse. But it wouldn't be one general letter to all the churches as we read these letters to us in our day. But these are personal letters to each church with a particular message for each of them. It's hard to find a clearer passage within the Scriptures that makes the reality of Christ, who has perfect knowledge and care of His church, than here. Christ knows His churches because Christ is first and foremost God, of course, but two, because Christ knows His church because He made the glorious bride by His own blood, but but even more than that, because He walks among the churches. He is among the church. These letters clearly reveal Christ's shameless care and concern for His bride. Represented locally, Uh, that universal truth that one day we will gather around the great throne, every nation, tribe, and tongue, every church with denominations and divisions down will gather before him and praise him for who he is. Uh, But now there's local expressions of that. This would be one, and that Jesus Christ is not only king, ruler, reigner, and high priest of his universal bride throughout the ages and in every nation, but He is too um, careful and concerned about even each particular church and body that's made up throughout the world. And you see that here, that He's a sovereign ruler of both heaven and earth. That's one of the the, the clear... truths that you find all throughout the book of Revelation. There's no denying that. I mean, if you're a believer and you read this book, I mean, you just see Jesus Christ, the King of glory, ruler of heaven and earth. He's seated on thrones. He goes forth to conquer and he's conquering. Um, He brings war with him. Uh, To conquer the nations, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. It's clear that he is the king of all the earth. He's a sovereign ruler of all creation. Yet at the same time, we find in this passage and in the previous passage that he too is not only king, but he is high priest. And he's walking among the lampstands. It's a picture from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament of the high priest as he would enter into the temple and he would care for that, 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 that menorah, the, 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 seven, uh, the seven parts lampstand. And his job was to keep the light burning. He would trim the wicks. He would refill the oil when it was down. Um, he would remove the waste when the ashes became high. And his goal, one of his many goals, was to keep the light going clearly um, I believe that this is teaching us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that picture and shadow of the old covenant. Jesus Christ, the high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies, presents his own blood um, to, to the Father himself, is received well because of his sinless perfection, um, also continues on that work even to this day as our great high priest, Um, interceding for each of us, but also interceding for his churches. If this church will sustain itself, be used of God in any measure, will be effective in the world, have any influence for eternal sake, it will not be because we were were, um, skilled, intellectual, academic, had the right doctrine, had this or had that, had the right programs. It will be because Jesus Christ is among this church. It will be because He is trimming the wick. It will be because He is refilling the oil. It will be because we are upheld by the Spirit of God. Um, it will be because the light that shows forth from this place does not originate um, with, 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 with man, but it will be a reflection of God's glory as we yield ourselves to Him um, in obedience to the truth of God's Word, leaning upon the Spirit of God, um, trusting in Him to accomplish it um, and not us. And one of the ways, I want to tell you, the primary way I believe that he accomplishes this work and that we may know this morning that Christ was present among us is is the proclamation, the going forth of God's word. How will they know you're here? You know? Like, how will we know that Christ was present among us? How did Ephesus know? They didn't have a vision, they didn't see Jesus Christ as John did with eyes of flaming fire and feet of brass. You know, they didn't they didn't they didn't get to walk into the Holy of Holies as John did to see him walking among the churches. Well, how will they know, John? You will deliver the word of God to them. That this is in part, but pops possibly the greatest part, two thousand years removed, but even effective in that day, the pastor would bring the word of God personally to that church, and they would know that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning, but at the same time has a great concern and care over his church. Thus John gives to the pastor, and John gives to the church or the pastor gives to the church these. These words, particularly to the church at Ephesus this morning, with a great um, deal of encouragement and comfort, but at the same time a great deal of warning and promises. It says he begins with Ephesus. You know, I came across a podcast some time ago, and the name of it was Doctrine and Devotion. I'm not necessarily promoting that podcast this morning, but simply to say that if you were to summarize the church at Ephesus, that would be a good way to summarize them the church at Ephesus was, was doctrinally sound church, and it was a it was a a um, it was a a vibrantly devoted church. That whenever you cut, whenever you go to Acts chapter nineteen and Acts chapter number twenty, we were introduced last week to the church at Ephesus, born out of false doctrine. And Paul comes in and he proclaims the truth of God's word. This church is born under the preaching ministry, and just miraculous things happen, such to the point that Acts chapter number nineteen, uh, Acts chapter nineteen and verse ten says that as a result of Paul's ministry, there the word of God was proclaimed throughout all of Asia, both Jews and Greeks. That their influence, their power, their effect was great. It was extensive. It was expansive. Um, it was personal, but it was also practical. It was influential, not only at the church there, but a church that lives that devoted to Jesus Christ. No doubt makes an impact in their local community. But God was so gracious to these people that their light shined not only there, but throughout the entirety of that province or that continent. And we see, and what we seem to find is that at the foundation of their effectiveness was something very simple yet profound. We might find and we might conclude by reading this portion and looking at other portions that the reason for their effectiveness was because they were doctrinally sound and they were just devoted to the Lord's work. And that's what you see here. You see here that that, that they are arrayed with the truth of God from head to toe. You find out that they loved the doctrine, they loved the theology, um, they loved, uh, they, they, they heeded the word of, of Paul in Acts chapter 20 as he gives an exhortation to the elders to guard the flock of God Why? because wolves will come in, not in this church. They heeded the warning. Um, they, they put out evil men, the text says. They hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They hated the idea that, that, that grace would be abused. And, I, and, and, and there would be liberty given for sexual immorality and idolatry within the church. They hated it so much that they exercised church discipline. They weren't afraid of excommunicating um, evil men. They, 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 they were willing to shoot um, uh, apostates on sight, doctrinally in that sense. Um, they were there to protect the flock of God. And guess what? They did. You may look at that and you may exhort and we will exhort in the coming days those very things that we need to be on guard, men. We need to have sound doctrine. and We need to be theologically sound and we need to be ready to exercise um, the the, the call that God has given us to protect the flock of God, even at the cost of ourselves. But you come to this portion of Scripture and the striking thing is, is that that doesn't seem to be the source of their light. Why? Because if it is, then why the great charge to be to, 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 that it might be removed? Um, it seems that the that the foundation of their effectiveness and their and the and the um, the source of their light and warmth to a lost and a dying world was was their profound love for Christ. It's evident in Christ's warning as the reason for the removal of the light. Jeremiah two two gives some, something uh, similar to the Old Covenant people of God. He says these words, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. This is God speaking. I remember the love of your betrothal. When you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord, it says. And then you read a condemnation of Israel just two verses later. It's very similar to this one. What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? Neither did they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt who led us? Verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. The fountain of living waters, and they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold the water. The, in the beginning, the love of your betrothal, the, 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 the phrase has to do with the love for a bride. Or the love that she has for him, a genuine love, a first love, a preeminent love, the chiefest of all horizontal loves, human to human loves, a love that is committed, it's selfless, it's sacrificial, it's serving. It's that kind of love in 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. That is a love that, that, that is the essential, the essential ingredient to all of Christianity such that Paul could say, man, if you even give your life and your body to be burned, guess what? Without love, it means nothing, nothing at all. Nothing. You can live the most captivating life. And you can stand before Jesus one day and he said, that means nothing. It means nothing at all. But it seems here that this is a charge brought against Ephesus um, because it was something that they once had and now they don't. I believe what we're dealing with here is primarily a believing people. A people who were blessed by God, a people who had a light for God, a people who were excited about God. But, but, but the doctrine and the devotion was, in ev- was, was undoubtedly built upon and grew out of an incredible love for Jesus Christ. Because that's the danger here. Of the de- that's the decline in which they are, the descent in which they are now embarking upon. As you fast forward a couple of decades, maybe three or four decades, two decades, there's some debate over that, and what you have is a church that's drastically different, yet not all that different at all, right? If a successful church is measured by orthodox teaching, vigorous activity, then the church at Ephesus was a successful church. But that's not how Christ measures, clearly, according to this passage, the spiritual state of any congregation. That our spiritual health this morning will not be determined by our religious activity. It will not be determined by our programs. It will not be determined by our statement of faith, our doctrinal soundness. And this is where droves of Christians and multitudes of churches have gone wrong. Maybe we've gone wrong. And if so, we need to repent. That there is a mentality that is prevalent within the church of Jesus Christ that suggests As long as a church is doing something, as long as a church is saying something, as long as a church is standing for something or against something, then it must be a good church. It must be a healthy church. But clearly, that is not always the case. The reality is is that they may simply be a ticking time bomb. Like a man who has an arrhythmia within his heart and a, a blood clot is just is just sitting there waiting for the first trauma to come to be sent throughout the body in which the man will die of a stroke or a heart attack or maybe worse. He's walking about totally functional, unrealizing that there is something within his body that, that, that has the likelihood to kill. And the danger is, is that he doesn't know it. That he sees himself as vibrant, he sees himself as functional, he sees himself as capable, he sees himself as able, yet not knowing that there's something lies beneath that he is totally unaware of. And that without the proper diagnosis and a physician to come with the proper tests, it is just a matter of time before this church or before this man (laughs) dies. A death that they never saw coming. And that's the reality this morning. That's the reality of the church at Ephesus that's the reality of this church. That's the reality of every church. Um, that's the danger that we have before us here. That there is something that lies with beneath the surface level of the church. And we'll get to this in just a moment. But the danger is, is that they don't even know it. That it lies dormant. That these people seem to be Deceived. And they need someone, they need Christ to come to them and graciously correct them so that they may regain, be restored and regain the light and effectiveness that he died for them to have. And that's the reality for us today. Robert Murray McShane, you may recognize him from the reading plan that some of you are on. God has extended his light centuries into the future, even to affect us. And he was preaching at one time and said this to his own church, and I want to commend the words to you as well. He says, I do not know, quote, that I believe. I speak of my own parish, for I know it best that there is no word that I could find in the Bible that I could address to you that would be more applicable to most of you than this. And this is what Jesus is saying to us tonight. He goes on to say, I have this against thee, that thou hast left thy first love. It is not man that has this against you. It is not I that have this against you. It is Christ. It is He who suffered for your sake. It is He who was crucified, who died on the cross, who left His home for your sake. It is Jesus who has this against you and He is saying unto you, was I such a small object of love that you could only love me one night? That you could not watch with me one hour? That you grew weary of loving me so too soon. End quote. That that's the reality. The reality is not that we're preaching this morning to atheists or, or the Ephesus was atheists, those who had never known the love of God. The great sin of Ephesus and maybe the great sin of us and maybe the great sin of you. Um, is not that you are an atheist. It's not that you are agnostic. It's not that you don't know. It's not that you're suppressing that great truth. It's not that you've never felt the love of God and experienced the love of God shed abroad in your heart. It is the reality that, that having had that, you've now fallen from that. You've You've, you've left that whether intentionally or unintentionally and having tasted the goodness of God and the grace of God and the overwhelming peace and comfort of God, now you have, you have clung to, you have left that clinging to your religious activity and think that that will suffice you to the end. Thinking that that will be a light to a lost and a dying world. Knowing that, that if God accomplishes anything in that type of church, it is not because of their labors, it is in spite of them. But the right type of church, the church that Christ urges us toward this morning is the type of church that, that those things are intact if they're undergirded by a tremendous love for Christ. We, love our, we just don't have sound doctrine. We love it because it, 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 it spawns from Christ. Uh, and that's what we find here. So that, such that we see a serious decline a great a serious decline that is leading to a grave danger that that what we have here this morning contained within this portion of scripture is a great call to the church that they would return Thus, they've 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 they've, they've left their first love and they're on a a serious, I cannot I don't know how to make this more weighty than that because other than this, uh, we may come to this and we may think this is the first church in the decline. You know, we're okay. We've got some ground to make up, but we can turn back. You know, we're not nearly as bad as the church here. We're not nearly as bad as the church here. We're not nearly as bad as we go down to the churches of Revelation. You know, We're not nearly that bad. And if you think like that, you're a fool. Okay. If we think like that, because what we want to do as, as righteous people and sometimes self-righteous people is say, look, it, <laughs> my son might be doing this, but at least he's not a homosexual, you know? Um, or, you know, like our church is here, but we're not like the apostate church down the road. And you know, we'll just throw them under the bus and we'll run all over them all day long so that we can be happy and content, indifferent and apathetic in and, and, and our lack of love for Christ, you know? Like we can just we can we can make these other sins greater than and then in some reality that's true. I don't debate that. But if we utilize those things and use these other people so that we don't have to examine and judge ourselves as if we are somewhat better, Jesus Christ comes to you this morning, the very word of God, and, and with those piercing eyes and those pure feet and that and that and that, and that, and that, that strong arm and that, that gracious. Gracious call calls you back to Himself. Why? Because this sin is great enough to remove all of your influence and all of your effectiveness for His name's sake. That this is the first step in a great decline. And for us to think that that we are not quite as bad as or if it's not as great of a sin, know this this morning, it's great enough sin for Jesus to say, I was walking among you and the light's about to go out and I will come and guess what? I will come quickly there's no delay that if this is carried on and you refuse to hear my word and if you refuse to heed the call, then know this, I will come and I will come quickly. And that phrase, I will come, is used all throughout the scriptures to refer to a condemnation or a judgment upon the people. I will, I am coming and I am coming quickly that this is a serious decline. And the and it's a great it's a serious cl- decline that leads to the great danger, and that great danger again is that that the that the light would be removed. You'll remember that the lampstands here are significant, and they are they identify us as a church, not only as to our substance but as to our function. That you and I, us as a corporate body, are Matthew five sixteen. We are we are to let our light so shine before men. Why? so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That Jesus Christ, when He saves the soul of a man and He puts a body together, puts within them a light of another world, and that it is your responsibility, your duty and your great privilege to carry that light out all throughout the world in your own family, within your career, and all throughout the community, That when Jesus Christ died, He accomplished that. Not only your eternal salvation, but He put within you a shining light of a witness for the glory of God. And that testimony to your family, to your children, to your wife, and to a lost and a dying world. That this message is sent forth primarily by us, by life and by testimony. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, but 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 the but the revelation and the glory of salvation is revealed through his truth, carried by men not only in word, but also in testimony. And you see the graveness of that in Philippians chapter number two, where he argues that the character of man can also dim the light. Right? That that we're not arguing either or here, that you need to be a faithful witness of doctrine, yet you can live like the devil. Nor are we arguing that you can carry the glory of Christ, yet be contained as to the message. That Those two don't exist in extremes in all reality. That what you see is you see that a church is to be the right kind of people, the right type of person, the right kind of corporate body. And they express the glory of Christ, the, the supreme ethics, of Christianity. they The very character and nature of Christ as the Spirit of God produces fruit in their lives. And the people look at you and they see the love of Christ. They see the joy of Christ. They see the peace of Christ. And it's overwhelming. And it's so overwhelming in that life that they can't contain it. They must tell others about it. And that is the way the gospel has been propagated for the last 2,000 years through the people of God and the message of God, and the character of God, shining that glory into a lost and a dying world. There's no doubt in my mind that Ephesus knew that. They understood that. They were that. And that's why in Acts chapter 19, the Word of God was proclaimed throughout all of Asia. That this was a people who knew God. They knew the blessing of God. They knew the blessing of obedience. They knew the blessing of the Spirit and the power of God. And, And that entire heritage is what he's calling into mind. And he's saying, Do you remember that? That light that you were, the, the, the close communion that you had, the blessings that were espoused, the, the glories of Christ, just your children. Do you remember, Ephesus, when your children were coming to Christ by the droves? You know? Do you remember when you preached the gospel and it had effectiveness in the community? Do you remember when you were laboring at work out in the de- de- tent making, guys? Like, in, and, and there was something different about you and, 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 and people were coming to Christ asking questions because, because of the light that was shining forth. And some of us have no idea what that's like. We just think that that's something of the New Testament time and the apostles, you know, and and we're just we content with nominal Christianity and living in this life, hunkering down, pitching our tent, um, prepping until doomsday, and just waiting on Jesus to come. When in all reality, Jesus Christ died for a people throughout the nations, and we were to follow in their example being influential in society, preaching a powerful message undergirded by the Spirit of God, and as that goes forth, the nations... Changed. I'm not buying into to, to one moment today that, that that is a different reality for the church today than it was for them. That we too are the light of the world. That we too are to be that city that set upon a hill, and that we too are to 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 permeate the darkness, and by our character and by our life and by our testimony and by carrying faithfully the word of God as it is preeminently. Grown out of a love for Christ and a compassion for the lost that is born out of just a, Z, a that he is our first love, our chiefest love, our preeminent love, that he is that great um, bridegroom. And they run the great risk and danger this morning as they begin to decline. Um, and, they, and the danger is that they'll lose their life. Why? First of all, because of their hypocrisy. They're hypocrisy. They're working, they're laboring, they're zealous, I mean, they're just they have veracity, they're tenacious. But for what? That's the great question this one, because it's not because of Christ. It's not out of a love for him. That they were being motivated to continue on, but it was not the love. Of Christ, or for Christ, or for the lost, that they had been as they had had at the beginning. So we have to conclude that something else is motivating them, something else is driving them. And I don't necessarily know exactly what that is this morning, because the text doesn't tell us. But I simply say that to say that the the gravity and the weight of the sin comes with that. The decline speeds forth gravely without, if we don't return because of that, because, because it affects every part of our life. So, in some sense, they're carrying on that they love Christ and they're doing it for the love of Christ. If they're not, thus they're, they're hypocrites in some way, right? Let me posit it like this If love is the principal thing needed to honor Christ, then it is impossible for its decline not to affect every single aspect of our Christian experience. Right? So if love is the principal thing and the thing that we need to, 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 for anything to mean anything, and we need that to honor Christ, then it is impossible for its decline, not to affect every single aspect of our Christian experience, thus everything meaning nothing. If our love for Christ is wrong, our, it's waning, it's low, it's nothing but vapor, there is no doubt in my, life, in, in my mind that it will show up in every area of life. No doubt it showed up in their prayer life. Where will the desire come to rise out of your beds and meet with God? What will the motivation to gather with God's people to cry out for blessing of the congregation of the glory? it? where will it come from? If our love is small, will it not affect our prayer? Will it not affect our reading of God's word? Will it not affect our enjoyment in it? Will it not affect our desires? Our desires will come from somewhere else. Our affections will be somewhere else. When we leave our first love, it will affect our very desire to be in God's house with God's people. The things that God has provided for our edification, the fellowship of the saints, the preaching of the Word, the Lord's table, they won't mean very much anymore after a period of time. After all, they were given for that one reason that you might love Him more, that you might feel His presence, that you might hear His voice, that you might know Him more, and thus increase that love for Him. If our love for Christ goes, will our not only our... Affection for the things of God go. Will it not for the souls of men go? If we don't love Christ, why should we encourage others to? I mean, we'll do it because we know it's right. But they'll know. They'll know. They know when you love your wife, right? You don't have to tell them. You can say, "I love my wife," but in all reality, I, I, I people know. <laughs> I've heard some. I've never heard some people say, "I love you" to your wives. In all reality, I know they do. Why? Because of the way they engage them, the way that they act about them, the way they talk about them, the way that they care for them, and then some of you say could say, "I love your wives a hundred times," and it wouldn't mean anything. Why? Because of the way that you care for her, the way that you are not engaged in her life, the way that you abdicate your duties, the way that you would give yourself to all other things except for her. That—that's the reality. The danger of this body is—is is, of this body at Ephesus is that 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 that, that, that they can deceive. For a period of time, right? But the next generation that comes along, they won't be quite as hard workers. They won't be as effective. Um, they'll be looking for ways out of the diligence. Um, why? Because their love is not the same love. It'll affect their evangelism. It'll affect the. This affects everything. When your love for Christ wanes, your love for others wanes. Your love for the lost wanes. Your love for the church wanes. And then your love is placed upon something else. And it takes your attention. It affects everything. It will affect the way and the burden that you have for the sin in your lives. It affects your sanctification. What's our great motive for holiness? Is it is, is it born out of a legalism to make ourselves approved by God? Or is it born out of a love for Christ? Is it born out of a a need to prove ourselves to others or or are we abstaining from lust and sexual immorality and pride and greed and a a hundred other idols in our hearts because of Christ and Him alone? Our sanctification should be born out of our love for Him as much as our salvation is. That we should mortify the deeds of the flesh and pursue Him out of love for Christ. I mean, it should just Destroy our hearts to think that when I engage in this thing, that Jesus Christ cried upon a cross for that, and he cried upon a cross for the very sins that we enjoy, the very lust that we pursue, the very pride that we guard, and that it is our love for Christ, I, I'll say with confidence that that is one of the greatest, if not the greatest guard for sin in our lives. You know, that once you, once you build a love and cultivate a love for something, it's not difficult to leave those things for other things. It's like the love for a wife, you know. Um, one of the best things for me in, in my Christian life was getting married. You know, God knew that I needed it. I needed it for my own soul. And He gave me a love for her. And as that love grew, it was amazing all the things that I left behind Things that other men wouldn't 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 dream of. I mean, you gotta be a man, hold on to the boys, you've gotta run your game, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. Not if it's gonna put at risk this. This is too precious to me. She is too great to me. You know, God has given me a love for her, like that is not parallel to any other human being. It was not hard to say no. It was not difficult to leave. It was not. It was not hard to lay aside. But look what you're leaving. It it, it it doesn't compare, you know. And the same is true with Christianity. When when the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts, and this is what He's trying to provoke to them, because they knew that once, they knew that in the beginning, that the love of God that was shed abroad in their hearts, that they would literally live and die for Christ, that they would put themselves at odds with the world, with civil authorities with pagan idolaters, with priests and priestesses of, of of the highest order within Ephesus. They would put themselves at odd with them in both life and death. Why? Because the love of God was shed abroad in their heart. They were not willing to leave they were not they were not um, willing to let anything break into that communion with Christ or to to invade that love. They were willing to lay aside all things for his name's sake, even their lives. The danger is, is that in the decline, hypocrisy is inevitable. That we be, we 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 carry on church as if it was always like this, and we, sh- we we proclaim to a world an affection for Christ that is that is that is clearly waning. Yet we continue to proclaim it, thus we become hypocrites and liars. And it number two leads to spiritual darkness. Here's the danger, the great danger is that these people did it. And I don't think for one moment um, it was necessarily intentional. The, the great danger of this is that is that we will um, deceive ourselves into thinking that it's not true. Right? But, but when the light fades and the darkness prevails, because the light's going, you have a church staggering and stumbling around in the dark. Yeah, think of Samson for a moment from the Old Testament. This is probably the most striking um, realities of this passage. Samson was a man after God in some sense. He was strengthened by God. And at some point, Samson loses his way. This was a man who knew the true spiritual power of God. He understood what it was like to be used of God, to be an instrument in God's hand. He knew what it was like to be wielded by God for His glory and truly impact the world. And Samson falls in love with someone else, with a Delilah, despite the fact that he ought to have known her schemes, her plots, and her plans. And this man with supernatural uh, strength fell asleep in her lap and, 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 and lost the ability, um, and, and ability lost it all because he had lost his first love. He disobeyed God. He allowed the enemy to kill, steal, and destroy. And while he was sleeping, Delilah did the deceitful act, strips him of all of his power. He wakes up and guess what? He carries on God's work, which was miraculous before um, but 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 here's the kicker. In Judges sixteen twenty, it says this. And she, speaking of Delilah, said she woke him up and said, "said Samson, the Philistines are upon you." Samson woke him up, no doubt in disarray. And 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 Samson, what does he do? He jumps up and he goes forth. The, the Bible says that he awoke from his sleep and he said, "I'll go out as before, at other times and shake myself free." And the text says, "But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him." astonishing if you sit and think about it he did not know that the lord had departed from him what happened they took him they put out his eyes they bound him and they threw him in prison why because he allowed his affections to be bound to another he allowed a foothold in and that was all that was needed by the evil one to ruin his spiritual power And he would spend the rest of his life both in physical and spiritual darkness. There would be things that were recovered, but but there were things that were forever lost, such as his eyesight. There's nothing more tragic than this. Not only for Samson, but for a church, for a Christian. If the light speaks of truth, of joy, of comfort, of life, of vitality, spiritually, how sad is it to spend your final days without it? With little or no joy, with little vitality, with little comfort, with little struggle, with little uh, through this land, groping around, knowing we ought to be something and and we ought to do something great for God and we should be an instrument in His hand, but we know that now we'll never be. What a dismal picture. What a striking image. Think for a moment. Meeting here week after week, month after month, year after year, going through the motions, mechanical liturgy, singing of songs, hearing of sermons, and not one of those times the Lord ever speaks to you. To never leave the Lord's house and say, Man, God was with us today. To leave here today in every Lord's day and it left you no more changed and transformed than when you left the grocery store. It's just another place, it's another location to leave never knowing the comfort of the Word of God, to never know the ministry of the Spirit of God in your hearts, to never know the warmth and the depth of the fellowship of God with the saints. You see, that may be the very reality for some of you. That's what it's like in Laodicea. Christ is not present in His church. He calls from the outside, but not from within. From within, They're they're apathetic. They're indifferent. They're not listening. But this church does care, And 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 it may listen. And I pray that we will as, as well. Can you imagine what was going through his mind as he got up and he expected the Lord to be there? And he wasn't. That he thought the Lord was with him, but he wasn't. He had abandoned him long ago. In his disobedience and his defection from the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord was off, but he didn't know it. Can you imagine that in a church? Knowing the grace of God, knowing the love of God, knowing the comfort of God, but somewhere along the way, losing it, not even knowing it, and then engaging the world, standing up to preach a sermon in your own power. You know? It's exhausting. Engaging the world, you know, in the opposition of the world, the devil himself, the evil one, demonic entities. I mean, just engaging in the community without him. You know? Because at, some, because at one point in the fight, um, at one point in the fight, Samson doesn't just look around and say, wait, God is not with me. Let me bow down and pray. No, he's in the battle and he knows that he must fight. So what does he do? He does what is inevitable with all of us. Naturally, he relies on his own strength. He picks up his own sword and he learns how to fight that day. He learns how not to depend upon God. Why? Because he cares more about himself now than he does about, about making things right. That's inevitable with us. What happens when the glory of God leaves and we don't know it? We inevitably begin to fight for ourselves. We learn how to preach without Him. We learn how to evangelize without Him. We learn how to, 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 to try to reach our kids and educate them without Him. We learn how not to lean on God anymore because, because He's not there, yet we convince ourselves that He is. Why? Because we have sound doctrine. You know? We have good theology. We're actively engaged. Surely God is with us. Is He? Is he present among us? Do you hear his voice this morning? Is he the chiefest of loves of your heart? Is he the reason that you gather? You know, is he when you wake up in the morning and you open up your Bible? Do you do it out of a cold um, liturgy because this is what you've always done, or do you wake up and just, just just long to hear and wait on the Lord? Does he comfort your heart when you open up the book and you read it? Do you spend time in prayer and find the greatest of comforts there? The danger is this morning is that the spirit of God could have left us, and we don't know. And by natural man, what do we do? We don't want to. Uh, we can't let this thing go, so we've got to carry on. Inevitably, what happens is, is the next generation won't carry on with the same zeal and vitality. And if the love is not communicated and shared with the next generation, they, 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 inevitably they'll become like the world. Um, they'll, they'll just like Samson, fight with their own strength. They'll look to the world for marketing strategies. They'll look to the world for other power. They'll look for the world, how to fill a church. And um, they'll look to this or they'll look to that and they'll become like the world. Eventually they'll devolve into to nothing. Their light's gone. They'll be laid to see Christ is outside the church. Jesus will come alongside and say, you're done. You're done. That's the grave danger. The deceitfulness of sin is that, that it was unnoticed, by the church. Ephesus didn't know. He said, how do you know that? Because Jesus had to come. Now maybe there was conversations within, who knows, talking to the elders, you know, this thing is beginning to wane, we're not 100% sure, but it seems that it went unnoticed, that they were like Samson, who were who were standing to fight, engaging the Philistines once more, as they always had, yet without the same spiritual power, because the love had waned, and Jesus Christ comes in, and he and he corrects them. It seems to go unnoticed and they were deceived. Why? Because they needed Christ to make Himself known to them that they may turn. That He calls for them. He says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I have this against you. Seems like a stark rebuke. Seems like a a harsh um, correction. But let me just remind you that this is the love of God for His church. It's Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 6 that recounts and quotes the Old Testament about a father chastising his son. That this is what a father does. That this is what a bridegroom does. And the perfect bridegroom and the perfect father comes as he walks amongst his, his children, knowing their inner men, knowing their hearts, and, and sets them aside. He could leave them to themselves. He could continue to allow them to devolve. Why? Because they deserve it. But no, he's committed himself to them in such a way and in such fervency that he, that, that, that he comes to them before coming in judgment. And he comes to them with a call for them to turn and to return unto the glory in which they were once present among him. And thus it's a gracious act. As God reaches out to John, John falls as the dead man, gives him a message, tells the pastor, preach this to your church, proclaim it, read it until you can't read it anymore, that they may have ears to hear and eyes to see why, because I forever love them. No doubt in my mind. That this wasn't just a task to be given to, as, a, as a formality. That this is the creator of heaven and earth, the savior of this church who had once acted in them in such an influential way, and their light was so bright, and he sees it beginning to wane, and thus he comes to them with, with his word, calling them back. So we see the decline. We see the deceitfulness of sin. We see the dangers of hypocrisy and self-deceit. And then we see the gracious act of God in calling us to our duty or calling them to their essential duty. This is essential. Christ's message to his church was not without hope. It was not without mercy, it was not without grace. The church had left its first love, but there was no way there was no doubt a way back. And that's thus this is the gracious act of God. So he calls them. And these are not new things, these are things you've probably heard in a sermon before. And I'm gonna give them to you quickly. But, but maybe even the most important. So I encourage you to go home and meditate on these things. If this is you today, if this is us today. And maybe it is. Then what is our responsibility? Christ is not here. I'm not here to throw us under the bus or to throw Ephesus under the bus. But to ask us all to recognize that we are mere men leaning upon God and are we leaning upon Him now? If you're not, then this is God calling to you as a son, saying as the prodigal, come home. What do we need to do? Number one, remember. Number one, remember. That's what he says in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. This church had forgotten, as we've mentioned many times, and I don't need to go into all of that, but they had forgotten primarily Christ and what He had accomplished in former days. It had begun preoccupied not with Him, but with other things. It had forgotten the first dealings of the Lord Jesus Christ with their hearts. It had forgotten how precious He was. It had forgotten the joy of walking with Christ in the early days. It had forgotten what he had done for them and how he had loved them and how the, the, with a true love and with the depths of their hearts. And they had allowed something to become between them. And this is not only in Ephesus. I read to you a portion out of Jeremiah 2 just a moment ago. Um, what did he say in Jeremiah 2? After he said, i have get these two things against you, forsaken me, you've created uh, broken cisterns. He goes on with the condemnation. He, he says this, you did not say to yourselves, I'm paraphrasing now because I have it right before me. But he says, you're not saying to yourselves that, that God brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, we recounted just a couple of days ago, Deuteronomy 6, after he gives the uh, Shema, the, 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 the great command to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, to teach those to your children. Later on in the passage, he says, be careful, though. Because in your prosperity that do not forget God. That all throughout the scriptures there is this, this calling back to the people of God to not forget the activity and the work of God in their lives. That in our prosperity and in our influence, even in a godly way, we can we can inevitably begin to lean upon ourselves and put our put our, put our confidence in our own strength, and we can forget that that where we came from, and we can forget our heritage, our spiritual heritage, that it was born not in our own strength but in God. Thus, He encourages. Um, the people of God to be actively engaged in a mental way, in an emotional way, in a spiritual way, to make it part of their lives, to continually go back to the original works, to go back to remember grace, to understand why they're there, to understand how they arrived, and to understand what they're to do, that they are to to cultivate a, a, a fervent, Meditation of their hearts in the things of God, and particularly in those things that He had accomplished in them. And they're to recognize that. They're to examine their own hearts. And so are you. So am I. That just as, as grave of a reality it was for Jesus Christ to stand and to speak to that church in that day, or Moses to stand up with the Word of God in His day. It is just as imperative for us to stand up and read and preach and proclaim the Word of God recognizing that this is Jesus Christ. That He's the One with the eyes that pierce that the dividing asunder. And that we are to regularly come to Him and examine our own hearts. And if this be us, then we are not only to remember, men, we are to repent. It's a sin. It's more clear to me today than ever that this is a clear command. That if we are to repent, then it's clear that the lack of love in Christ, the greatest commandment, is even possibly the greatest of sins. That again, this this misses the mark of giving glory to God. It's inexcusable. It's unreasonable. It's unprofitable, especially for the people of God who know what He's capable of, of who know who He is, who have tasted and seen that He is good. What do you gain by loving something else? What do you gain by leaving Him? What have you ever loved that gave you more or promised you more or fulfilled you more or gave you more? There is nothing to be gained to cling to the worlds. Yet as our love and our affections are gripped by other things, we inevitably leave Him and we don't even know that He's gone. Thus, we we, we, we learn to live with ourselves and find in our own strength. And this morning, He's calling you graciously to repent. Not with a worldly sorrow, not with just an intellectual acumen or a but he's calling you to understand the gravity and the weight of this great sin. The one who has created the heavens and the earth, the one who has, has himself willingly entered into the world and took upon himself a human flesh that he may die a sinful death so that he may purchase you and I. And, and this man who is, this, this God man who is represented in Revelation chapter number one, this man. Um, deserves all the love that you have to give. And out of that love will grow a love for others, a love for your wife, a love for your children, a love for the lost. This is the foundation of all of Christian life. And if it is the thing that means everything, and without it, it means nothing, then this must be the greatest thing. And this is the thing that we must give our greatest attendance to. That everything that we do should cultivate the very love of God. Why? Because this is the greatest thing. Do you love Him? And if you don't, repent and return. That's what it says. Remember, repent, return. Do the first works. First of all, it can't mean the same works, right? It can't mean the works that they're doing. They're working, they're laboring, they're patient. Repentance calls for a change. It calls for a return. It calls for something other than what we are now. So many of you think, maybe just, I just need to give it harder. I need to, I need to focus. I need to, I need to work harder. I need to be diligent. I need to do more. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need completely other works. And you're, you're, you're probably sitting there saying, I hope he tells me what the works are. I don't know what the works are. He doesn't tell them what the works are. You say, why? Because he calls them to remember the works. But this is not something new. I don't have a seven step plan to get to, to revitalize a church. You know, I don't have anything contained within my mind or within the world or within these scriptures um, that, 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 that to, to contribute to your return. That if you have, that if you are a part of this church, if you are a part of the church at Ephesus in this sense, then what you have is a return to what you have. That you know. You know, we all know. Why? Because we were there. We remember when God just overwhelmed us with his his love. We remember what it was like to be a newborn babe in the world. We remember what it was like to cling to the gospel message. We remember what it was like to be saved for the first time. We remember what it was like to hear the word of God as if we never had ears. To see Christ's glory as if as if we were we had never had eyes before. You know, it would be like a blind is opening his eyes for the first time seeing the glory of the world like he had ne- because he had never seen it before. You remember that. He's calling you to remember that. He's calling you to cling to those Scriptures and to cling to those works and to cling to those affections and to cling to those things which were once yours but have seemed to be gripped by the world now. And He's calling you to go back. He's calling you to, to remember. And then he gives a gracious promise that if you do that, so he says. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church is hear this morning. It's, not, it's judgment that is conditional. And then he gives that great promise to him who overcomes, that you can overcome this morning. You can overcome your lack of love that in Christ He graciously gives you the opportunity, the ability by faith and love to, to, to cling to Him again. And to those who do, he says, I'll give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And this is a, an eternal reality, but it could also be very temporal. It could just be saying that the that, that, that Adam and Eve that were ejected from the garden, they wouldn't have been ejected if they obeyed. It could be simply drawing to their mind as, as much as eternal temporal saying that if you overcome and you turn back, guess what? You'll stay in the garden. I won't remove the lampstand. I won't take away your influence. Your light will burn forevermore. Do you remember what it was like in the glory days, Ephesus? It'll be like that again. Do you want to be influential in the world? Do you want to be effective in the world? Do you want to be a light to a lost and a dying world? Then remember, repent and return. It's there for you. This isn't Jesus Christ coming to beat them up. It isn't Him throwing them under the bus. It isn't Him pouring out condemnation upon them. It is a gracious Savior, a Father, coming to His Son, a, a bridegroom, coming to His bride, saying um, with, 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 yes, with gravity, you, you don't love Him anymore, but will you? And you can. Just remember, repent, and return. And you'll be as effective, if not more effective, than in the early days. Church, do you want to be effective? Do You want to live in this life, in this world, in such a way that all of Kingsport, the Tri-Cities know that, that, that whether they bow the knee to him or not, Christ Bible Church believes there's a God in heaven and his name is Jesus Christ. You want to hear the word of God that has been proclaimed throughout all the area. You know, do you want people to come from every nation, tribe and tongue? Why? Because the glory of God rests upon this place. Not because there's any man here that's capable, not because they're skilled or have great marketing strategies, but there's something happening within that church. You say, I've never heard of that. I've never seen that. Maybe it's because we're like Simpson out in the fight and we've learned how to fight on earth by ourselves. You know, maybe this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Maybe the love of God should so overwhelm our hearts that it just gives us to a life wholly devoted to Him apart from any other things. And we spend and be spent. And, Jesus, and we live and we die. And Jesus Christ is made known forevermore. And our light shines forth. Is the light shining this morning from this place? Um, if not, we need to remember, we need to repent, and we need to return that we may be effective. just want to give you some practical help this morning. Just another five minutes of promise. Number one, if this is you freely and honestly admit to God where you are, He already knows. He knows where you are spiritually. He speaks so that you too might know, right? That man, that, that, that God man with eyes that are piercing even the of thunder, you and dividing you asunder, you can't run from him and you can't hide. He already knows the condition of your heart. He speaks to you this morning, not that He might know and not to carry out any informality or any formality, but that you might know that you might confess. You'll remember that great verse in James, "Confess our, as we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That word confess literally means to say the same thing. God knows. He simply wants you to know. He wants you to know this morning where you're at. Where you stand spiritually with God, with man, and with the church. And if you be outside the gates, He wants you to come in. If your love is waxing or is, is, is waning, He wants you to return. He's calling you to remembrance. He's calling you to look to God and to lean on Him that you might live for the rest of your days with spiritual power and be a, a, a glorious picture to a lost and a dying world of the love of Christ. So be freely and honestly. Just to confess your sins before Him. Then take time to meditate on the person and work of Christ. I'm convinced. that the only way to increase your love for Christ is to meditate upon the love of Christ. And we've learned that in parables in past. To meditate on Christ, to meditate upon His love, to meditate upon the Gospel... It's not to do more. It's not to be more. It's not to try harder. It's not to, 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 to just grit your teeth and bear it. It is literally to meditate upon the glories of Christ that He might transform your thinking and your mind such that you love Him more, love your wife more, love your children more, love the world more. So, so be honest with Him that your love is waning and seek to, 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 to delve into the Scriptures and within the Word of God and within the Gospel particularly that you might see Him, that you might hear Him, that He might make Himself known to you as He did in former days. So let us read the Word of God. Let us meditate upon it until our hearts burn within us. Our laziness and our busyness. He said, I don't have time. Our laziness and our busyness are the two greatest barriers to our holiness. It takes time to be holy. It takes work and labor to get to know your wife. It takes even more time and labor to know Christ and to seek Him out. So go to the Word and stay until you find Him. Say, well, I only have 10 minutes in the morning to do my reading and then get up earlier. You say I don't have time. Your soul hangs in the balance, and you don't have time. We're talking about a reality that if, if you don't have a love for Christ, then it means nothing. And if all you have is ten minutes in the, in the morning, and you don't have time to seek Him, to pray for Him, and to find Him, and to stay there until He does, then what you what you what you what, you're proclaim, what, what you're, you you've you've convinced yourself. That all that means something without this. When in all reality, that if you don't have this, then everything else you're doing and you don't have time for, or that you have time for, means nothing. That you've carved out an entire life, a like emphasis of busyness and maybe even good things. That unless you find them, will mean nothing. You don't have time not to find them. You can't wait And sit by and hope that God shows you Himself one day. That you are called to love Him and to pursue Him and to seek Him out and to find Him. And without your life means nothing. That Jesus Christ stands to Ephesus and stands to us today and says that if this is not a reality in your life, then all of that is absolutely nothing. But that you can overcome, so come. Pray that the Lord would increase your love. Pray that He'd make Himself known to you in greater ways. Pray that He'd strengthen your faith. Seek to serve Him. That He might make Himself known to you in your faithfulness to Him. Do more for Christ. Determine day by day to do some act of service, some labor of love as you do trust Him that He'll increase your love for Him. Fellowship. Keep company with those who love God. You know? That who's, who's, who's in life, you, you just see the glory of Christ. Our love will never grow if you spend the vast majority of your time with the ungodly. Fellowship is one of those means that God changes us as we share with one another. And if you're with the world all the time, no wonder we become like the world and love the things of the world. So spend your time in the Word. Spend your time pursuing Him in prayer. Spend your time with one another. Those men and women whom you know God is with, they may too point you in that direction and share with you the very love of Christ. They may cultivate that in your heart. Guard your minds, men. Guard your minds, women. It's the greatest of battlegrounds. It's the battleground at Ephesus. It wasn't with their hands. They were busy. It was in their minds and in their hearts. Thus, to keep the love of God, uh, shed abroad in our hearts in a fervent way, we must seek to guard our minds from things that might detract us. You know what that means? It might mean that you need to get off of this or you might need to stop doing that You say, well, that's just too much. Well, your love is too great for those things. Then, Cut your hand off, pluck out your eyes. Why? Because your soul is on the line. And the problem is, is that you can't give those things up because you don't love Christ enough. Because if He is, then, all the, then, then the rest of the world pales in comparison and may it all fade away that we may have Him and Him alone. And to some of you, this sounds like hogwash and gobbledygook. And I pray that if that's the same, Jesus might speak, I think that it's true, that Jesus might speak to your heart this morning um, to show you the frivolity of our lives apart from him Jesus Christ stands this morning even walking among this church I pray with the the light shining forth maybe flickering in your heart and with a gracious conversation he speaks to you as a father to a son saying come home come home." where's home it's in the love of Christ it's in the love of Christ It's in the love of Christ. So may we examine ourselves this morning. May we see the great danger in the decline. May we see the greatness of the sin, the greatest commandment leading to possibly the greatest sin. And this morning as Jesus speaks, may He draw us out of our lull and our sleep and the the, the sin of self-deceitfulness. Stop deceiving ourselves with our activity and ask ourselves the real question, do we love God? And is He the foundation of all of our lives? Are we pursuing everything for His sake? Are we pursuing it for ourselves and just using Jesus um, as an instrument for our own glory and our own gain? If it is the truth, then let us be honest with ourselves, be honest with God, let us uh, remember what He's accomplished in our hearts, let us repent and let us return that we may overcome and be influential and the glory of God displayed to this lost and a dying world, may we be an instrument to be wielded in the hand of God in that form. Because I believe that's what He desires of this church this morning that we would be effective, that we would be influential, that we would be a city set upon a hill. And if we're not, let us remember, let us repent, let us return, that we may overcome and be what God saved us to be. Let's pray. Father, we love you, thank you, and praise you for the privilege just to proclaim your word. Father, would you use it for your glory? Even as I spoke of Samson, Father, I saw so much of myself in him. I saw so many days, Father, where I just labor by myself, thinking this is normal. I've seen so many men do it. I've seen so many men battle. And I've seen so many men strategize. I've seen so many men use their own strength. I've seen very few men Battle on holy ground out of a love for Christ. Father, may you make me that man. And would you bring in my life men that I may see that example? Father, how to truly war after the flesh, how to truly war, Father, for Christ, to truly believe him and have faith in him, Father, and trust him for great and glorious things. May Ephesus, Father, in its early glory days. Um, to be more than just an epithet of what a church ought to be. Father, may we be um, a semblance of that. And may we, Father, be what you desire for us to be, not Ephesus, but us. A church that's bought out of the world, Father, for the sake of Christ, that we might um, testify to a lost and a dying world, um, the glory of Jesus Christ. And may we do it out of an abundance of love. Father, may you cultivate that love in us for Christ. May the word of God be read differently. May uh, the vision of Christ be seen differently. May, Father, um, just just the life in Christ be wholly apart then, Father, what we had once before, or that you might revive and restore, Father, what we once did have. May we not be deceived, Father. May we not be hypocrites. May we be fools for Christ, ready to live, Father, and ready to die. To be unheard of and to be unseen. Jesus Christ may be known throughout all the world. And I trust, Father, that only um, love could do that. So give us a greater love for Christ. Father, um, take it to the depths of our hearts. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. And help us to pursue all things for his sake and his sake alone. Help us to die to ourselves. Help us to take up our cross and follow Jesus all the days of our lives. And may the world know, Father, that in this place that we serve a risen Savior, regardless of their response. Because if nothing else, Father, you're worthy that all the world know. Let them deny Him, but let them not die not knowing that Jesus Christ died to save sinners like us, and that He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And may you wield this church to in some measure be used to that great end that all the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.